Amen. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you uh, if you're at home with us this morning. Welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you with us as well. We are in a series that we're going to be walking through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of material there. I know that might seem daunting, but there's enough for us to spend a number of weeks there as we just almost go verse by verse through all of the different examples of what it means to live by faith there in Hebrews chapter 1. And we've come this morning to verse 3. And so we're going to read from Hebrews 11, the first three verses actually. And then what we're going to do every week is as we're talking about the different persons in the Old Testament, we're going to jump to the Old Testament texts where those stories occur. And so this morning we're talking about creation, and so we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 1 as well. And so if you want to follow along with me, you'll see the page numbers in the Pew Bible are there. You can turn out, you can pull out your own Bible and follow along, or you can just follow on the screen behind me or the screen on your um, television or your computer at home as we read together from God's Word. Uh, let's read. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by God, I mean, excuse me, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then jumping to Genesis chapter 1, which is the creation account in the Christian scriptures. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then at the end of chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the word of the Lord. And so we're talking these number of weeks about faith, what it means to live by faith, what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to have faith. And the first thing that we're going to see here is that faith really is something that describes your overall view of reality, your mental map for the world that we live in. And so the question for us this morning is, what is, what is your mental map? There were these old things that we used to go to called, shop, uh, called malls back in olden times. And if, you're, and if you ever went to a mall that you've never been at, they could be overwhelming places because you could go and not know exactly where you were. And so the first thing you would typically do is when you go to the mall, you would find those little stations in the middle of the mall somewhere that has the map, right? And, we're, and then you can say, oh, I want to go to this store. Okay, here it is. So I got to go down and I got to figure out. You, you, you oriented yourself in the right place so you can make sense of where you were and where you wanted to go. That's a mental map. What is your mental map of the world? People of faith have a certain mental map of the world. It's what we find here in verse 3. People of faith think their way to the premise that God made all that is because that is the best explanation for what they find in the universe. This verse, verse 3, it doesn't mean that Christians believe in creation and in a creator despite all of the evidence. That's not faith. That's actually brainwashing. Faith me is making sense of the evidence. That word understand there, it means to put the pieces of a puzzle together, to, to take everything in and, and make sense of it all. And so people of faith, faith is making sense of the evidence and then committing to a particular way of looking at the world and then testing it against the reality that you come up against as you go through life. There's a reality that can be known. I mean, we, I mean right? I mean, jump off a third-story balcony. What's going to happen? It doesn't matter whether you believe you can fly. You're going to splat into the concrete. 
If you go to a new city you've never been to, you use a map like you do at the malls to get around and find the places that you're looking for because there is a reality. There is there's a certain way the streets are laid out. It does, you know, make, pretend doesn't work in those situations. And so faith is having the right mental map of the world so that you can find your way around. Now let me say it another way. There's a wrong story and a right story to live by. And faith is living by the right story because it comports with reality. So what is the story that makes up, you know, the trajectory of your life? What is the mental map that you're living with? G.K. Chesterton said, I've always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, then of course there is a storyteller. And so what this verse 3 does for us is it shows us the wrong story to live by, and it also shows us the right story, the one that comports with reality as we experience it in the world. And Christians, people of faith, are people who reject this wrong story, which we're going to call materialism. It's the dominant worldview of the day, and who embrace the right, the real story of the world in three acts. Not only creation, as we see here, but actually the story really comes to us in the Bible in three acts, creation, fall and redemption and that is the story that makes up our lives so let's look at each of those in turn okay we're gonna have to think a little bit more this morning this is a mess of a sermon i'm gonna go ahead and just let you know that you're gonna have to follow along because these are really big ideas we're not really preaching this one verse this is really a sermon about the entire bible which is an impossible thing to do 30 minutes well just 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 settle in we'll be here for a while no it's about the same, same length as usual, maybe a little bit longer, we'll see, okay? But let's, let's try to do this together because I think this is an important exercise. So first, let's see that faith, people of faith, or faithing people, according to Hebrews 11.3, they reject a materialistic view of the world. Now, I'm going to be very brief here, but let's define materialism, okay? N- um, naturalism or matterism, picurism, whatever ism you want to refer to this by, but it's the belief and I use that word intentionally, it's a belief that there's nothing beyond the physical world, that all of all things, you know, that you run up against can be explained through natural or scientific processes, that the world was not created, and therefore there is no creator. I mean, in the beginning were the particles, right? That's it. Nothing more than that. And so all of this that we're going through, that we encounter, is just an accident. Life is random. There's no inherent meaning in the universe, and therefore there's no transcendent morality or purpose. And so Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, this is his accounting of the universe. Just listen to this. This is stunning. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, he believes that, and I feel sorry for him. He believes that, and a lot of people claim to believe that. It's, it's a soft belief, right? A lot of people claim to believe that. More and more people, but hardly anybody, this is the thing, hardly anybody who says they believe in a materialistic world go and live as if they really believe it. And so what faith does is faith looks at the world and says materialism is problematic. I mean, it's, it's big time problematic because it doesn't account for reality and because we can't seem to consistently live from the belief system that we claim to have. It doesn't fit. 
People of faith look and say, yeah, that, that just doesn't fit with what I find. It's terribly problematic on a number of levels. It's intellectually problematic. And you'll hear people make the distinction between science and religion or science and faith. And, you know, religion is all about faith, but science is about things that we can know and observe. But that's not true. I mean, th- to say there's nothing beyond the physical world is a faith statement. Just as much as anything else is. Because it's impossible to prove. And so in some ways, materialism doesn't make good intellectual sense of the world. I'll give you just one example. I mean, we could be here all day, but I'm already on notice that I've got 30 minutes, wherever that came from back there. So let me just give you one example. Now, how often do you hear people claim not to believe in these things talk about all the things that are wrong in the world? I don't believe in God, but what's wrong? What, what is wrong with the world? But here's the thing. Things can only be wrong if there's a right way they should be. And that can only be so if the world was designed for some purpose that's not being achieved or that's being frustrated. And so our intellectual view of the world doesn't fit inside this materialistic framework. Something inside of us demands there to be more. And there are lots of good intellectual reasons to reject the material view of the universe. You don't have to stop thinking to believe. By faith, we understand, it says here. By faith, we think. By faith, we have the right mental map categories to think properly. And so there's intellectual problems. But secondly, not only that, um, it's, it's emotionally problematic as well, this materialistic view of the world. Charles Taylor has coined a phrase, cross-pressure, and he's had some insightful things to say about secularism, but he uses this phrase to describe this problem, this emotional problem that people kind of trapped inside this imminent frame of this, this, you know, secularized world that they experience, that people today, he says, find it harder and harder to believe there's anything beyond the material, physical world, but there's, that presents a huge problem. So we don't, we don't believe in God anymore, but we miss him. We say this world is all there is, but we still go to church to get married. Because we're haunted by God's ghost. So atheism, secularism create a malaise, a sense of loss and emptiness and despair that people feel. And so you see people who claim to be materialists living lives that are contradictory to those beliefs, saying there is saying there is no transcendent morality, but you better get on board with my view of justice. We have a hard time believing in God and creation and so forth, but the alternative is even worse. And so James K. Smith has rightly admitted that most of our so-called intellectual hang-ups with God and doctrines of creation and so forth are actually emotional hurdles that we have to overcome. We misdiagnose the problem. And according to the scripture even, being committed to a materialistic view of the world forces you to live an emotionally fragmented and dishonest life. You have to be suppressing the truth about God that's there sitting on your heart and you're constantly pushing it down and it's exhausting. And so there are emotional and intellectual problems, but thirdly, it's problematic morally as well. There's There's a moral problem here because if there is no God, then there is no such thing as justice, no such thing as morality. There's no moral basis to say that genocide is wrong 
or any of the really big, ugly things. The only rational, moral framework would be for all of life. <laughs> I don't mean to make light, but it would, you know, the only inside materialism, the only rational, moral framework would be for life to be like those awful movies, The Purge. You know what I'm talking about? You can admit, or maybe not, that you maybe, at least you're familiar with those, where one night, there are these movies where one night every year, one night, anything goes. There's no rules. Murder, rape, arson, it's all permissible. No police, no, nobody's going to be, you know, prosecuted for any crime, but not, but not just for 12 hours. Imagine that all the time. I mean, if materialism is the real story of the world, then Voldemort, he who must not be named, is right. There is no good and evil. There's only power in those who are too weak to seek it. And that, of course, is the kind of thing evil people say. But who's to stop them? Who's to say they're wrong? I mean, human beings seem to, to deeply believe there's a difference between violence and compassion. We seem to in, inherently understand this, but in materialism, that's just not true. It's all random. It's just chemicals and molecules, and morality is just social conditioning that we should evolve beyond. You see the problems? I hope you can feel the weight of the problems. There's some real significant problems. And so a guy that I've been reading a lot uh, that he's written, his name's Mark Sayers, he, he uses this just really helpful analogy. He says that human beings, in order to really find happiness, there are three things that we need. There are three buckets in our lives that have to be filled. The bucket of freedom, the bucket of meaning, the bucket of relationships. And we need to be full in all three of these areas really to find a happy life. Well, in materialism, which is now the dominant cultural view, worldview, there is no truth. There's only my truth and your truth, and so the search for authenticity that has just so gripped our culture, which has become such a powerful cultural force, and it explains all the identity politics and so forth that we're seeing in our nation, that's, that's really all there is. And so we're a half century into a cultural project from both the right and the left to expand personal freedom to unprecedented lengths by dismantling existing traditions and norms such as family and sexuality and gender and language. And so the result is, 50 years after the sexual revolution and so forth, we've achieved unprecedented levels of personal freedom. Our freedom buckets are overflowing. And we're not happy. Because, because our relationship and our meaning buckets are dry and empty. We're more isolated and lonely than ever. We're drowning in freedom, but thirsting for meaning. And this is where the materialistic world leaves you. This view of the world, this is where it leaves you. And so what are we to do? Well, people of faith reject that whole way of thinking and embrace instead something different. The understanding that meaning in relationships come from belonging to the right story. That your meaning bucket and your relationship bucket gets filled up by getting swept up into something bigger than just you and so the second thing we see is that people of faith, according to Hebrews 3, affirm the story, the meta narrative that the Bible presents as being the real account of the world, where it says in verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made not out of things that are visible. So there's a story in the Bible that, that, that we're told of how the world really is. In creation, as it's mentioned here, is only the first act. As I've said, there's, there, are, there are actually three Creation, act one, fall, act two, redemption or recreation, act three. And together, these provide the meta narrative, the grand overarching story that makes sense of the world 
as we know it, as we experience it, what the world is really like. And so the Bible, the Bible tells a story about the world that seems to fit with the reality we experience. So let's look together. And here, this is what we're going to do is just walk through each of these, draw out some implications, which is all we can do this morning, to kind of to help, help us make sense of some of the ways that these two ways of looking at the world really are different. So let's just begin with Act 1, with creation, and this is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw all that he had made, behold, it was very good. Now, by faith, we understand that the world was created. Cornelius Plantinga writes, creation was neither a necessity nor an accident. It was an act of imaginative love flowing out of God's interior life that overflows with regard to others. And so in order to share his own internal happiness, God made the world. And we're told there in Genesis chapter 1 that he took the dark, formless void and he brought into being this beautiful place that we live in from nothing. And he looked over all of it and he said over and over again, that's good. Oh, man, that's good. Oh, wow, that's, that's good. That's really good. And then he made creatures to be his image bearers that would rule as co-regents with him over everything that he has made. That's the doctrine of creation. And it means something like this. A friend of mine, this week we were talking and he, uh, his first grandchild was born uh, this past week. And we were just talking about, oh, what a great, just what a tremendously fun time that is when children come into the world. And he said, you know, I was just struck thinking about this little baby coming into the world absolutely just unaware of how surrounded by love and attention and affection that he is. I mean, think about it, all the family gathered at the hospital, everything prepared at home, the nursery and the crib put together and everything ready for his arrival. So much love, so much love to greet this baby as it comes into the world. And the child might, well, he's not or she's not even aware of all the love around them and won't be for years and years. Even when they're teenagers, they're not aware of just how truly loved they are. And that's the world we live in. Not blind, pitiless indifference, but intentional, overflowing joy and generosity and love. And that's the doctrine of creation. Now, what are the implications of that for us? Well, faith means a couple of things. It means that we look at the world and we see that the chaos has become cosmos. You get this description in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Those words are significant there. Significant there. Without form and void means no place, means nothingness. Darkness there just refers to a scary place. It's monsters in the closet or, or under the bed. And then the waters that are mentioned in those verses, a chaotic place. So the world was no place and a scary place and a chaotic place because in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea was a, le a leviathan that had to be defeated. And so in all of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the God subdues the sea as a part of that account. But all of this chaos, we're told in Genesis 1, becomes cosmos. And cosmos is a word that means to put in order or to arrange. Now, we know this. Think of the etymology of the word, cosmetics. What is cosmetic surgery? There's something misshapen or ugly that is being made beautiful. And so the world we live in is cosmos. It is not random and chaotic. It has purpose and design and beauty. But another thing we could say is that meaning and purpose then don't come from freedom, but from submission. I mean, in the Bible, freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want it is the ability to want the right thing. 
A fish is only free in the water. Take a fish out of the water and it will flop around on the counter or on the ground. Put it in the water and with the exact same motion, it will glide effortlessly as it goes about because it's made for the water. And Jesus said that there's a truth, there's a reality. And if you and I know it, if we live in submission to it, then it will set us free. But meaning and purpose then come from submission and not freedom. This also means this creation the doctrine of creation, that the natural world is supernatural. That the world we live in is not made up of only the things that we can see, but there are things that we can't see. There's more than just what our eyes are able to observe and behold. The world is not a machine, merely. It's an enchanted place. It also means that we humans are a mixture of dust and divinity. As we're made in God's image, created from the dust, we should remember that and not get too big for our own britches. But we're also made in God's image and therefore with enormous potential and dignity. There are no little people, Francis Schaeffer used to say. Every assignment, every, you know, no matter how small it may seem, has the potential to change the world forever. Migrant farm workers and Wall Street executives, prostitutes, female business owners, we are all kings and queens and we should treat the image of God and one another with dignity and respect. And learn in light of creation to embrace our creaturely limits. As God's image, we were made to be like him in certain ways and to remain unlike him in others. And the trick is to know the difference, to be able to make sense of all of that. To know that God is compassionate and kind and we are to be too. That he's holy and so we should be. But he's also all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere present and we are none of those things and we're not, we're not meant to be those things. And so rather than to try to be like God in his unlimited divinity, we should be like him in our limited humanity. Image-bearing means becoming fully human, reflecting as limited beings the perfection of his limitless. Do you see some of the implications? We live in a world that's been created. And there's, I don't know, hundreds of implications of that truth that our line has to come into alignment with, that our life has to come into alignment with if we are to really live happy lives. But there's a second act, not just creation, but the world we live in has also fallen. And so the second act the Bible teaches, the second act of the Bible goes on to talk about how all that God was made was ruined by the choice of the image bearers to side with evil against their maker. And this sin, this rebellion made them liable to death, but death was not limited to them. The curse of it began to spread throughout the entire creation until the world began to revert back to the void, back to the darkness, back to the chaotic seas with the flood in Genesis chapter six through nine. And so that now as we live through this world, it's a place of disintegration, not just physical disintegration where we, our bodies break down and eventually die, where we grow old and start to get pains and groans and things don't work right, but, but spiritual disintegration where we can't connect rightly with the one who's made us. Emotional, psychological integration where we're not even right kind of within ourselves where there's all kinds of disorder and chaos inside of us. Relational disintegration with one another. Cultural disintegration with culture wars and so forth, even cosmic. We're made to rule over the animals and now you go into the woods and they growl at you. I forget who it is. George Whitfield said that the creatures growl because they know you have issue with their maker. Everything is messed up. And so Plantinga again, he says, human life is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> no kidding. 
That's an understatement, isn't it? He says, each, listen to this, each new generation enters a world that has long ago lost its Eden, a world that is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and millions of old habits congealed into thousands of cultures across all ages. That's the scope of the problem. The world has fallen. The life God intends for us to live is opposed. One writer I wrote this, I read this week put it this way. He says, as it turns out, there is actually a dark Lord. And there are trolls under the bridge and creatures in the closet and monsters under the bed. Our primal fears are well-founded. The world is a scary place. It's off its axis. And what does this mean? What are some of the implications here? Well, let's be shorter here. But first, it means that sin is not just breaking the rules. It is seeking happiness apart from God. And so Plantinga, again, he puts it this way. The human predicament is that inexplicably, irrationally, we keep living against our lives against what's good for us. We keep living our lives against what's good for us, against God, against each other, against God's world. We even live against ourselves. Sin is this massive problem. It's more than just, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. It's thrusting God out of the center of our lives and saying, I'm going to figure it out on my own. But the second thing we can say is that Sin is the root of all the problems in the world. It's the thing that is wrong, and therefore any solutions that don't address the core problem are destined to fail. We are not just broken, and the world is not just broken. It is broken because you and I, we are transgressors who need to be forgiven by the one who made us. And that's the main thing. That's, that's, that's the spring of everything else that's wrong. And if that's true, if our, if our reality is that we are sinners in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure, then grace is spiritual oxygen. Christians aren't good people who got it all figured out. Raise your hand, anybody? Want to acknowledge that? Christian, I'm a good person. I got it all figured out. Welcome to church. You can be like me. No, we should stop expecting that of ourselves. We should stop expecting it of one another. We will never not be sinners until Jesus comes, which means that our souls need grace the way our bodies need oxygen. We're screw-ups, folks, all of us. And if we're going to live together in families, as friends, in church together, we better learn the art of giving and receiving grace because grace is spiritual oxygen for sinners. And what it also means is that growth, fourth growth, means less sin, not, I mean, more sin, not less, actually. There's a line from a Richard Lovelace book about submerged continents of selfishness and pride that at first remain hidden beneath our moral behavior, and growing means that we don't move, pa- we move past some of that external stuff we're dealing with, but we become more and more aware of what's really going on underneath. So there's more and more sin and more grace, not less, more honesty about our failures, more self-knowledge about the deep inner places of our lives, more walking in the light with others. That's the path. But what this doctrine of the fall also means is that if we're going to be saved... If there's any way out of this mess that we're in because it's a mess that we have made for ourselves, then, then the saving must be done. The salvation must come from outside of the world. Nothing human can jolt us out of our slump. We are the problem. And so human solutions only result in more problems. I mean, politics won't fix things. Not ultimately. There's a tinge of realism from this part of the story that helps us avoid being naive and looking at things through rose-colored glasses. The rescue has to come from outside of the world, but I have great news. That's exactly what Christianity claims has happened. Because in Act 3, 
If Act 1 is creation and if Act 2 is fall, then Act 3 is entitled redemption or, or recreation. And it begins almost immediately in the biblical story. But it culminates in the coming of God himself into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the image of God, capital I. God himself clothed in human flesh. He lived a life of obedience that we were meant to live. He died upon the cross to satisfy God's justice so that we might be forgiven of our sins and healed and that sin might be vanquished. And he was vindicated and raised on the third day, triumphant to put death to death. And now this one is reigning in heaven at the right hand of God, putting all of his enemies under his feet, making ready for the day when the whole world will be made new when he comes again. That's our gospel. You see, it's reductionistic to say that Jesus died so that we might be forgiven and go to heaven when we die. That doesn't resolve the story properly. Jesus died to do away with sin, yes, but he was raised into the new creation that now with every breath he breathes is sweeping across the old, making it new. You go all the way to the end of the Bible. You can look this up maybe later this afternoon. It's really fascinating to the book of Revelation. And there, the culmination of all that God has done in the world is described in a number of ways. It's described as a city with perfect dimension, a cubed city coming down out of heaven, the perfect form. Remember what Genesis 1 said, the void? Well, this is the anti-void, the city of perfect dimension and form. It's a place of light, we're told, not darkness. There's no sun there because God's glory is so immediate that it drives the darkness away. Jesus, the Lamb, he will be a lamp that lights up the whole world and the nations will walk by his light. That's what we're told there. And it says there will be no sea. Now that doesn't mean you won't be able to go to the beach. There will be beaches in heaven, I suppose. It just means no more scary stuff. That all the monsters will be banished. And those scenes in Revelation, that's not coincidence. That language there is not coincidence. Revelation is being presented to us as the, the culmination of everything God is trying to make of the world as it's represented to us in Genesis chapter 1. It's the culmination of God's long work through all the plot twists. Now, what does this mean? It means that the world that we live in is bent towards hope. I have great news. God is taking us somewhere. We're not just going around and around destined to just repeat the same things there's a story that's being told and the hardest parts are the middle of the story it's just the middle of the story if it's really hard right now it's just because you're in the middle but eventually we will come to the happily ever after it's on the way that's what the bible promises now what does this mean for us well it means that the future's bright remember that old 80s song the future's so bright i gotta wear shades christians go through life with sunglasses on because the future's so bright but it also means that all of life has a not yet component to it. I mean, this is a significant feature of Hebrews 11. It says uh, here in this chapter, we'll come back to this. I'm thinking of verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We have to embrace this not yet aspect of our lives. There's a, there's a not yet reality component to all of the promises of God, they're not all the way here until he comes again. And so, this also means that we're realistic and not naive and not cynical either. That sin is an ever-present force in the world, but so is the hope of resurrection. 
And the Bible's clear about this. Jesus, Jesus, because he's been raised from the dead and is seated in a place of power and authority, Jesus can change any person, any relationship, any marriage, any nation, anything he comes up against. You with me? That's the amen moment, right? Jesus can change anybody. And so we don't live cynically towards one another. We don't live holding one another to the past that will, is just destined to be repeated forever. Jesus can change. There's power for change in knowing him. But just a couple more things. Then faith. A fourth implication that I thought of here is that faith in Jesus includes faith in his program. It means getting on board with this restoration project. I mean, think about my, uh, my youngest daughter and I were, um, were home this weekend while everyone else was at... Um, the retreat, and for whatever reason, she's just into flipper flop, and so we binged flipper flipper flop all weekend. And think about all of these home renovation shows, right? There's flipper flop, there's fixer upper, there's extreme home makeover. That was like back in the day. I don't know, nobody watches that anymore. But you know, we're obsessed with these things. We watch them all over and over again. Why? Because there is, I think, there's just something ingrained in us. There's this sense of knowing that we. There's something wonderful about seeing some just run-down, nasty, dirty thing turned into something beautiful because it's the work we've been made to be a part of. But a fifth implication is that all things have been created good and all things have been corrupted and therefore all things will be redeemed. Listen to Plantinga one last time. God isn't content to save souls. God wants to save bodies too. He isn't content to save individual human beings. God wants to save social systems and economic structures too. Everything corrupted needs to be redeemed, and that includes the whole natural world, every last person, place, organization, and program, all rocks and trees and skies and seas, every square inch. Isn't that great? And that's what we're headed to. So be people of hope. Now, the world that we live in has lost its story and because it's lost its story, it's like walking into a movie 20 minutes late. You're just completely lost. You have no idea what's going on. You don't understand. You spend the rest of the movie trying to get your bearings and figure out, but it's always, you've, you, there's a sense of which you've missed something. But see, Christianity, Christianity offers a story that is the real account of the way the world is. And here's why I believe that. Here's why I really, me personally, I'm telling you, my personal, here's why I believe this. If you think about all your favorite stories, the books and the movies, you know, that you love, they're all basically the same when you really think about it. When you stop and just give it a thought for a minute, they all, they all go something like this. Something beautiful was lost. There, there was good, you know, and then something awful happened and some great enemy appeared. And so a great battle must be fought between good and evil. A journey must be taken, whatever it might be. There are insurmountable odds. And then all of a sudden, just at the right moment, the hero appears and sets things right and they all live happily ever after. Amen, right? It's the storyline of every fairy tale, every myth, every western, every epic, all the stories we love. And have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that we keep telling the same stories over and over again and we keep paying money to go see them in the movies over and over again? They're all the same story. Why? Well, Frederick Beatner, I think, hits on it well when he says this. The gospel is a fairy tale. With, of course, one crucial difference from all the other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. That it not only happened once upon a time, but that it has kept on happening ever since, and it's happening still. Amen? 
Only Christianity gives a, a, an appropriate mental map for the world as we really experience it to be. But do you believe? Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? So, Father, thank you for these moments together this morning. And I just pray for us that as we walk through this chapter in Hebrews 11 here week after week together, that you would, that you would help us, that, that, you would, um, that you would work in us, because we know that faith is ultimately a gift, something that you have to give. And so we would say to you, there's so many ways that we just get lost, we get confused, we, we forget the truth that you've given us to live by. We look at the world and we look through the wrong lens at things and we become overly discouraged. We forget that the world was created and we just think that we can make things up as we go and everything will be okay or we forget that it's fallen and, and so we become overly discouraged at our own sin or at others' sin and or just how hard things are. And we forget that it's being redeemed, that our future is bright and we have every reason uh, to place our hope in what is still yet to come so that we don't just live in despair and fearful of the hard things we're going through. Father, help us to be mindful always. We are people that you have made, the sheep of your pastor. Pastor, we are yours. And so the, the appropriate place for us is what the psalmist says, come let us kneel and bow down before our maker. Let us rejoice in the God who has made us and saved us. Because in doing that, we find our true selves. And so help us, some of us, some of us need to know you for the first time. Some of us need to be reminded, would you come and do that work in us as we sing this song here at the end of our service together. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those who belong to this story the Bible is telling about the world know that there's work to do. They're not naive enough to know that it's going to be hard work because we live in a world that's been ruined by sin. But they know that it's work that is difficult, but ultimately and inevitably destined to success because the world is now bent toward resurrection, toward redemption. Because of these words, we're sent into the world to join the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the work of remaking the world with these words. Jesus, at one point in John's Gospel, just reminded his disciples, my Father is working until now and I am working. And so we go just to join the work that they've already begun. That's what these words of benediction mean. And so receive them and receive with them the commission, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, to go and to live out the program of Jesus in the world as his ambassadors sent to make all things new. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Mm -hmm.